Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. In my interview with the deans of schools of theological education about the present state of that education, the word Dr. Karen Massey used in her assessment of what is happening within those schools is one of a reckoning. Definitions of reckoning involve the making of judgments, usually by calculation, of what is owed or due in an account, the settling of an account. Meanings get extended to include the act of being called into account or held accountable for actions and or consequences. For me, these extended meanings capture what I am observing happening in many ways and many places across our nation and culture, especially in this time of Black Lives Matter, hate crimes against folks of Asian heritage, and Donald Trump. Many of us, in widely diverse organizations, finally, although shamefully and tragically so, way later than we ever should have been, are seeking to become more fully aware of, to acknowledge openly and confessionally, to respond to, and are attempting to correct our complicity in the evil of the centuries-long legacy of colonial imperialism and white male supremacy. How that reckoning is taking place often depends on the nature of the organization. For example, for an educational institution, such a reckoning involves assessments and judgments about who students get to be, who faculty get to be, what books are read, what curriculum is taught, what teaching methods are used, whose histories are told and how they're told. For Christianity, in addition to the reckoning of its complicity in the advancement of colonial imperialism and white male supremacy and its legacy, there is an additional reckoning. This second reckoning is very much connected to the first because it is a consequence, at least in my mind, of the first reckoning. This second reckoning is due to the impact of the now decades-long and seemingly continuing decline, substantively, of Christianity in the United States. One set of organizations related to these reckonings, which tend to fly under our radar because their business involves the technical work of things like editing and marketing, in which most of us have little interest, are publishers. Yet these organizations are especially important for the focus of these reckonings because they have had, and continue to have, the power of deciding who and what gets published, and thus what resources which influence us and are available to us in the general public. That power has always been shaped by ideological and political standards and criteria. When you add the issue of Christianity's decline into the mix, then Christian publishers, in particular, have become deeply involved in questions of reckoning. One such Christian publisher, which has been attempting to do its own reckoning in light of current circumstances, is GIA. GIA is a major publisher of hymnals, other sacred music, and music education materials. 
seeking to be responsive to and corrective of complicity to the imperialist supremacist legacy always involves political judgments and decisions because from its beginning and by its very nature, colonial conquest is motivated by the political arrogance and greed of empires and nations seeking to exploit the resources and peoples of other lands. Again, the making of those choices in such organizations as publishers like GIA goes unnoticed by most of us, but not always. Because of its political nature, sometimes the choices of organizations draws the attention of news organizations. This is what has been the case with GIA. My guests for this episode are Kate Williams, Managing Editor, and Michael Sulhavy, Project Editor of GIA Music. This interview took place on Thursday, June 17. The day before, on Wednesday, June 16, GIA found itself the subject of a news segment on Fox News. Consequently, on the day of our interview, Kate, Michael, and GIA found themselves still in the maelstrom created by these types of news events. As you will hear, Kate and Michael are here to help us understand what is going on in Christian music presently and what kinds of issues and choices businesses like Christian music publishers are being challenged by in our present context. Well, welcome. Thank you, Michael and Kate, for being with me. Why don't we begin by letting each of you kind of tell your own journey uh, of how you are where you are now. Uh, most folks that deal with sacred things have a sacred journey themselves. And so uh, let's, let's, let's hear that first. Who wants to go first? Okay, David, thank you for having us. Uh, I'm Kate Williams, and uh, my story starts in Northwest Iowa. Sibley, Iowa, a little small rural farming community um, where I was born and raised um, and had a bit of a tough childhood and spent a lot of time alone, but found myself uh, drawn to music and to the arts and uh, eventually got really involved in my, my church choirs um, growing up and accompanied mass uh, on the weekends starting at about age 14 um, and was really immersed into both liturgy and language at the same time. My, my community, though it was uh, rural and small, was actually very bilingual and diverse. Um, and we deliberately participated in uh, both the English and Spanish masses at our, our local uh, parish. So did a little bit of a baptism by fire, um, learning both the order of mass and a lot of Spanish all at once. Um, but it was a really good experience for me as a young woman finding, uh, you know, seeking what God is and what community is and how to see myself in the midst of that. Um, I look back really very, very grateful for that time um, that I was immersed um, in, in uh, so much wonderful music as a young person. I came to Chicago to go to DePaul University to study music, to study piano and composition. 
um, and quickly got involved in the area, uh, you know, Chicagoland churches um, as a part of um, the DePaul student music ministry and eventually got connected to St. Nicholas Church in Evanston, which is another very vibrant, diverse community, um, as well as some campus ministry work at Loyola. I was uh, at St. Clement Church, a big, beautiful Byzantine structure of a building um, in a very affluent neighborhood, uh, Lincoln Park. And those were all the things that I did before I got to meet this guy, Michael, <laughs> and be a part of the, the GIA family. So I'm coming up just on five years uh, with GIA. And um, this has been quite an adventure too. <laughs> but good, good. I think the good outweighs the bad here, Michael. <laughs> it does. Michael. Thanks, David. I'm Michael Solhavy. Uh, and my spiritual journey literally began on a bicycle. Um, for some reason in high school, I would go to different churches on Sunday morning. And I would just go to churches and, and try them out and see what I thought. And um, I somehow ended up going to an Episcopal church, not too far from the house, a couple of miles actually. Uh, but there was one morning, terribly cold, and I thought, I'm not going to ride my bike all the way there. And here is this big modern church pretty close to my house, actually, which I'd never been in. So I thought, at least let me go in there and warm up. What good can happen in a big modern church building, I thought. I walk in, and there is a 50-voice choir in red robes singing with the congregation a setting of the creed by Calvin Hampton, one of the more stunning church musicians of the last half of the 20th century. I kept coming back. Finally, two dear women in the choir said, young man, we see you here every Sunday. You're always looking at the choir. You should join the choir. I was welcomed in. I joined the choir, and there I was. I'm also a DePaul grad, and I grew up thinking I would be a music educator. So I was going to DePaul, singing in this church. This church happened to need, the school needed a band director. So I was able to do band directing. And on Palm Sunday, they needed someone to conduct the Passion Corral, just a hymn in four parts. And the music director, Bob Battistini, who was very important to us at GIA, said, oh, Michael's a band director. Let him conduct the choir. Well, that first feeling of conducting a choir and hearing the voices, that's what got me hooked. Uh, I soon realized that perhaps church music, not music education, was going to be my interest and focus. I went to uh, Loyola in Chicago for a theology degree, and then St. John's University in Collegeville for liturgical studies. While I was at DePaul, I was a very part-time employee at GIA. Went to Minnesota for about 20 years to work at the Cathedral in Duluth, the Diocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis. GIA asked if I would come back. 
I said, sure. I came back. So this is my second tour of duty here. And um, uh, I'll say uh, about five years ago, I hired Kate. And now I'm working for her. And I'm very pleased about that. So it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. Well, GIA, even though it's Catholic in heritage, uh, doesn't publish just Catholic music. So kind of what's going on in church music and Christian music these days? Yeah, I, um, you know, the most recent assessment, I think, is that our customer base is about 40% uh, Protestant. We do tend to appeal more to the, the churches that adhere to a liturgical calendar or uh, you know, more, um, uh, you know, set rituals and, and practices because that is kind of our lineage and where we, where we came from. But we also have developed in, you know, the recent years, a really healthy arm of the company that's purely devoted to music education and not necessarily in, um, in a religious school context. It's, it's, it's secular. There's a whole, um, there are a number of series of books, pedagogical books that, um, a lot of uh, secular uh, public schools have adopted all across the country, and that's become really a very successful arm of the company as well. Um, and of course, we share um, from the educational side of the company and the sacred side of the company, we share obviously our love of music and I think our love of, of communicating what and, and how music can help us be community with one another. Um, we've also in recent years, I want to say this is probably 10 years ago now, Michael, can't remember exactly the year, but we acquired, uh, Walton music, which is, uh, traditionally been kind of advanced choral or perhaps, um, collegiate choir. Um, a lot of all state choirs find a lot of good repertoire there. Um, traditionally things that are, uh, require bigger choirs. So that might mean more Divisi, it might mean bigger orchestration, um, was, um, uh, uh, acquired by GIA, I think about 10 years ago. And that's also been a very successful and another healthy arm of the, of the company. We've really just been able to, in all of our acquisitions, um, really just kind of feed one another, feed each one of the, the different arms of the company via the, the, um, the, um, you know, expertise that comes with, which each different, um, area. Then most recently, we have uh, acquired World Library Publications, which is, you know, at one time was uh, one of our more major competitors in, in the Catholic music world. Uh, we traditionally would refer to the big three, OCP, Oregon Catholic Press, GIA, and World Library Publications. And just last year, we acquired World Library Publications. And they specialize really in renewable resources. So if you know the, the term missalette, it's a it's like a hymnal, but it renews either every season or every year. So people have an opportunity to get some kind of refreshed repertoire in there more regularly than a, a standard hardbound hymnal, which probably lasts more like 10 years. Um, so those are kind of the, the main uh, areas of our company that kind of all need attention and all are kind of their own well-oiled machine. Um, and within those, I would say, four major groups of our, our company, there's just lots of stuff going on all the time. Yeah, I, uh, I want to echo what you said about education. It's been wonderful that we've been able to take some of the music education materials 
move them to the sacred side because GIA really started as an educational and formational uh, training ground for people. And another way that we have been influenced, as you mentioned, was the fact that uh, we really have a footprint uh, with so many liturgical churches and Protestant churches. And I think that's best seen in the hymnody, in the hymn texts that um, we publish. And David, I know that uh, you have uh, interviewed people at the, the Hymn Society, the Center for Congregational Song, and uh, th those folks are very important to us. Um, we do choral music, but I think you, uh, I think we'd like to be best known also for congregational music. So maybe what's happening in church music, as you asked, is really what's happening here at GIA. This kind of sharing of styles, traditions. Um, I think church music today is, is marked by a real eclecticism. Uh, in my Catholic world growing up 30, 40, 40 years ago, the Saturday mass was the contemporary choir. 7 a.m. had no music. 8 was just a canter. 9.30 was kids choir. 11 o'clock was adult choir, and all of those different choir congregations may have had different repertoire. Uh, but now we're seeing, for the past 30, 40 years, this greater sharing of musical styles. Uh, I think that I think it's a major development in how congregations sing. Well, one of the things that led me to eventually connecting with you all uh, was the uh, awareness. Uh, that despite the uh, rise and and dominance of uh, contemporary Christian music, uh, that um, the traditional uh, anthem uh, was alive and well. Uh, new composers, uh, not just arranging old stuff, but creating new stuff. Because uh, you know, my wife uh, was a, a middle school music teacher, public school music teacher. And so uh, on our trips to my, my daughter's house, we would listen to all of the, the things that publishers like GIA uh, sent to her. Uh, and and, and I, I was amazed, uh, particularly not just with the dominance of, of contemporary Christian music, but also in public school settings uh, with the, with the uh, moving away from sacred music. Uh, still, how much sacred music was being composed uh, for uh, public schools. Uh, and so that kind of led me eventually to uh, thinking about uh, Christian music not played on Christian radio uh, that ended up kind of bringing me to you all. Uh, and, 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 um, so um, what do you think about, I mean, how has it affected you all? Uh, I know there, there are several things that have converged, but let's let's start with the or the, the the strain that uh, throughout Europe and the United States uh, for 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 over a decade now, Christianity has declined. Um, how has that influenced you all? Churches are dying. Uh, resources are drying up. Uh, choirs are struggling. 
Uh, and then with the influence of contemporary Christian music, uh, that that's compounded the issue. Uh, how has that affected you all? Yeah, if I may, I like to frame this question in as positive a lens as, as possible. Um, and so what helps me is to, you know, while to keep that very realistic question about decline and what next and how much and how long, um, there's another story about um, vitality that requires us to change the way that we see and we think about life and church and uh, religiosity and um, community and singing. Um, so, you know, I'm going to go at this answer through the lens of good news, which is the good news is that music is not dying <laughs> and community is not dying. It looks a little different. And even as we're having this conversation, we're in a virtual community, which especially in this last year has been especially uh, necessary for our survival. Um, uh, and, you know, it might look different too, because it's not as predominantly white in this country as it once was. And so um, if we look, for example, towards our uh, Latino brothers and sisters uh, who are also practicing Christians, uh, many of them Catholic, and I know them from my own upbringing, there is there's a different story being told there because there is so much life there and there is so much uh, growth there. Um, and I think those of us who come from mostly English speaking white communities um, don't always see that part of the picture. We just see the part of the picture that looks and sounds like us. And that part of the picture is declining. It is, it is dwindling. It's, it's becoming no longer a majority. Um, but again, the good news is that, the bigger picture, the image and likeness of God, certainly, is much more vast <laughs> than just than just um, you know the image and likeness of you and I. It is um, it's big, it's diverse. There's life, there's growth, there's new life. It might look um, different because of a, a you know an, an increased individualism and a decreased sense of community, but that doesn't mean that it's dying, it means it looks different. And so as publishers and as musicians ourselves, um, particularly music ministers, our job is to respond to that changing face of the church and of song um, in a way that, that recognizes it and validates it and is able to evolve with it. And I would just maybe bring, in fact, I will bring you some other points. Um, certainly what has changed is the type of music we publish. The days of the 60 voice choir in every parish are no longer there. So we're needing to publish simpler music or music of more modest forces. Uh, and, and just as Kate made a positive uh, out of this, um, I'm living through a positive right now. Here in Chicago, uh, the Archdiocese is undergoing uh, a process to 
really determine how many parishes we need, how many churches do we need to have to make sure effective ministry is happening. So my church is now part of three other churches. So there'll be three of us rather than my 18 singers. Well, there's 20 from this parish and seven from this parish. And now all of a sudden, I'm back up to 45 singers in our parish choir. Um, so that's an oddity that perhaps our congregations are decreasing, but hopefully the quality of what we can offer is increasing. But to be clear, uh, sales, sales have certainly uh, declined in some areas. We need to publish different types of music, but it's not all bad news. As I said in my uh, introduction, um, the nation seems to be going through a reckoning in very different ways and in many different areas. Uh, and all of it seems to bear upon um, dealing with European colonialism and male white supremacy. Uh, for now centuries, uh, that kind of male, white male dominance and the creation of standards uh, in my music degrees, uh, classical music was the standard of what was considered good. Uh, European scholarship was the standard of what was considered good theologically when I got into theology. Uh, and, and, and that's being questioned, that's being challenged. Uh, some of the decline uh, may be as the result of that. Uh, but it, and I know that it, this bears on you all in, in, in kind of different ways. And in our conversation that Michael and I had uh, prior to the interview, uh, we kind of uh, raised some of those questions. Um, so let's, let's talk about the... The one that's that's most pressing uh, that that happened uh, last night apparently uh, <laughs> that um, over a year ago you had uh, some uh, issues with a composer uh, and and now that's uh, hot off the press and and you all made national news and part of that has to do with what do you do now in relationship to uh, a composer that may have some questionable or dark uh, sides uh, to uh, their their life and their experience, and uh, or some unfortunate, not always just those other descriptions that I've made. Uh, how does that bear on what you all do? Mm -hmm. Tr tremendously uh, in this last year, especially. Um, we have uh, done a lot of reckoning internally um, and continue to do so, which I think is a reflection of what happens externally too. But, you know, all of us were so heartbroken and almost in disbelief uh, at the murder of George Floyd um, because, you know, we were all trapped at home 
<laughs> because of the pandemic. And a lot of us in it, I don't know, I can't say really for the first time, that wouldn't be, that would seem a little dismissive of things that I should have maybe recognized along the way. But in a, in a very intense, direct way, so many people were seeing what they thought didn't exist anymore. They thought this type of racism is a thing of the past and that we're better than we were 100 years ago, 400 years ago. Um, and we all watched this man take his last breath in the street and suddenly realized we're, we're no, no better. <laughs> we're no better than our, than our ancestors were. We, we have found ways to avoid talking about it or avoid seeing it or justify a status quo because of um, the way that our culture is comfortable privileging white and male voices. And so, you know, it definitely, for a lot of people, it was just a turning point. Whatever we're doing now is not enough to change what we condemn, to change behavior that we condemn. We talk all the time about how music has the power. <laughs> music has the power to, to change our hearts and it has the power to teach us how to be brother and sister. It has the power to teach us um, how to live in community. And all of us who spend our lives believing in and practicing this art of music are watching the lie of what we've we convinced ourselves. So we needed to really take a look in our own hearts as individuals and within the practices of our, um, all of our, you know, Communities are the places where we work, the places where we worship, our families and our friends. For GIA, um, we had an opportunity very near the death of George Floyd to put some of that desire in, into practice because um, a composer of ours, um, you know, dismayed uh, um, and you know, angry to see so much um, destruction and, and fire and looting and rioting in his in his home city, made a public post about that uh, about that feeling, and what people immediately jumped on is that as white people, <laughs> and especially as white men who get privileged times two. We don't, it's a sign of our privilege to be able to say, I am done with this. I don't have to be, I don't have to look at this. I don't have to pay attention to this. Y'all are crazy. I'm done. And so of uh, people right away, this was happening while the cities were on fire and the rioting and looting was happening and everyone was just kind of watching in horror, maybe some a lot of people just afraid for their own well-being and safety. He posts this, this sentiment that comes from deep privilege. And people rightfully jumped on it um, and brought it to our attention to say, you know, if you are a company that is committed to rooting out racism and your artists or composers are um, saying things that... Uh, really do, do nothing to dismantle a system of white supremacy, 
Um, how do you, how do you justify relationships with your artists like this? And, um, we responded and not in any way to, um, you know, quickly dismiss this gentleman or to, um, you know, not give him a chance. Like clearly we all make mistakes and deserve a chance to right our own wrongs and try better and do better. And he met us with really um, quite severe language that that let us know that he was not interested in admitting any wrongdoing or at, at perhaps looking at his privilege through any lens other than his own. And so we, in an effort to, um, you know, put that that uh, desire to be better into practice had to let him know that um, this is not the way that we think, you know, be, be conducting business or being a citizen is, um, it, we don't share these, these same sentiments with you. And we're going to have to part ways until we can come to some kind of, some kind of agreement. We don't have to agree on everything. Uh, but but some type of attitude, at least, that respects and honors all people. Um, and so we had to uh, suspend a relationship until we could figure out how to work that out. Um, he wasn't wasn't willing to do that. Um, and so that was a year ago. And just recently, he gave a, an interview to a magazine that kind of lit everything back up again, you know, excuse the illusion to uh, fire, but um, things are definitely a, a storm for us right now. The, the article uh, couched it in a way that suggested that GIA has been, you know, uh, you know captivated by the spirit of cancel culture and, you know, kind of just succumbing to mob mentality and um a part of the a life and seen a lot of comments about you know gia being a part of uh woke culture um intended to be an insult i'm not sure i fully understand all of the insults that have have come our way um but uh yeah it's been it's kind of lit back up and um you know, I think Fox News picked it up and did a, a segment on it. Church Militant picked it up and did a segment on it. Uh, New York Post, the Daily Wire, the uh, Daily Post, the UK is all over it. So we're in a bit of a we're in a bit of a, a social media frenzy at the moment. <laughs> Michael, what am I forgetting about that story? Oh, well, I think you covered it well, um, and. Uh... You know this this privilege, and uh, I, I I personally am grateful when there are uh, folks like yourself out there uh, helping us who have never had to confront or uh, face this because of our lack of awareness of it, and uh, this 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 white privilege um, extends into uh what we do with music of different cultures what we do with uh music of different ethnic groups 
what we do with um, women composers, uh, composers of color. Um, there's probably even a little bit of ageism in there also, where um, the folks who have been at it for the longest um, may not be willing to make room for others. So uh, what we have talked about, I think we want to be at the point when we look at music, we need, we need to say, most of all, the words are important, ironically, in music. The words, the melody, the ranges, uh, the texture, the beauty, all, all of those musical things. But a constitutive element of what we need to do is to look at where this music comes from. And I think that, that's a pretty new thing for us to reflect upon. Uh, we always want a piece, that, a piece that's pretty or scripturally based. But my goodness, now we need to also consider where this music is coming from and what we're doing with it. So that's something we, we think about in our work. Uh, we, we literally get thousands of submissions uh, every year of pieces of music. And uh, we're aware that there is a great disparity between the number of pieces submitted by men, white men, uh, versus women. Why is that? Um, well, unfortunately, uh, this also leads to the fact that, well, we publish more music by white men because we receive more music by white men and more music by white men goes in our hymnals. And, and how do we uh, correct that? Um, and Kate, I, th this is not for me to talk about, but I know you have talked about that tension among women Am I a composer or I am I a woman composer? And when do we hold up women's voices as composers? And when is it, no, I'm a composer, period. And uh, I don't need to throw that question to you. David's the interviewer here, but I, I just know that that's what we have talked about and, and maybe how we think about that. Because we, we've talked about it. Yeah, we talk about that quite a bit because I'm probably annoying about it, but um, <laughs> it's, one, it's one of those things where we're talking about uh, privilege of any kind. I think it's, it's a really hard thing to hear if you're the, the one being accused of having it. And, and you know, I, I say this not specifically at you, Michael. <laughs> I think I experienced this amongst my friends and my family too. When someone is accused of having privilege, I think people's minds immediately go to all the things that they didn't get. You know, I didn't get any, you know, I didn't get any paid college. I paid for it myself. I didn't get any, um, you know, car or house bought for me. I didn't get any special education. Education. I worked for this all myself. I earned it. I deserve it. Um, that's just where people's minds or hearts instinctively go to say, no, I, I deserve to be here. I earned this. And it's, um, it's a, it's a vulnerable and sometimes dangerous thing to talk about, but you had a better shot at, at getting to where you are because, you know, perhaps you didn't come from a level of poverty. Perhaps you didn't have to spend your time and energy and, and mental space uh, reserving 
and protecting um, yourself because uh, because of the ways you fit into a marginalized group or because of the way you were oppressed or because of the way, you know, it's easy for me to talk about easy. <laughs> it's I, I can talk about some disparities of being a woman composer because I know them deeply. Um, and I, I have no business talking about a disparity of being a person of color because I am white, but I know that feeling of trying to have to articulate how, you know, you didn't start halfway to the goal line like some other people did. Um, and yes, you're right. That tension is there. You know, we talk uh, pretty frequently about how do we make more space and how do we change the, the representation within that space and, you know, what, what is fair? What are the measurements? Sometimes it's simply counting. Like we've done that uh, experiment. How many white male composers have we accepted uh, in the past year? How many women? How many people of color? But that, of course, doesn't encapsulate anyone's entire person. And so the question, of course, is much bigger than that. But, but you know, data and numbers is also a good way to, to keep track. It's a, good, it's a good metric to show you if you're doing what you think you're doing. Um, so I, I, I love this question about um, am I a composer or am I a, a woman composer? Because I think a lot of the times when I write something, people get excited because, oh, good, it's a song written by a woman. So check. <laughs> and to me, that feels like, you know what? I didn't study women's composition. I don't have a degree in being a woman composer. I have a degree in composition and I deserve to be measured against the metric of my peers, the same metric of my peers. And, you know, the truth of that matter is when we start going down that rabbit hole, we start really talking about relationships and about how men are more comfortable having relationships with other men in our industry. A lot of those relationships are, are nurtured um, in male bonding, in community, and, you know, in, at the bar at night at a convention or around a dinner table or, you know, just the camaraderie and the comfort of being around people who look like you and who talk like you and who have similar perspective of you. That's true. That's true of everyone. But in this industry, um, I think there's there's a it's glaringly evident how the the comfort of of white men has really ruled the way. And I don't mean again to just put that forward as an idea that is completely full of negativity. I mean it just to identify and acknowledge that that this is the truth. And also, it's also part of a legacy. Um, you know. Bob Battistini, who you affectionately call like the, the grandpa of GIA, like <laughs> and I stand on his shoulders, and I, 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 I benefit. I get to go the next mile because he went the first fifty, you know. Um, and so there's a way to have this conversation and call it out in one another without completely dismissing any of the goodness that that came out of, uh, you know, our lineage. One of the other dimensions of this um, is not just what you're doing in currently seeking equality and, and, and addressing uh, the issues that we've been talking about. Uh, but what do we do with 
uh, past people that have been important, uh, you know, theologically and philosophically. Martin Heidegger, major philosopher, but he was a Nazi. Uh, Paul Tillich and John Howard Joder, hugely important theologians, but they had inappropriate relationships, uh, sexual relationships with their students. Uh, what do you do about past composers that are still yeah. important, still revered? Uh, the music is, you know, it'd be like if Bach was a Nazi or, you know, something like that. Um, what do you do about that? I have a lot to say about this, but I want to take up all the, <laughs> the time. <laughs> Michael, you go first. Well, this is also something that we have experienced in the past year where a well-known composer of ours uh, had numerous uh, allegations uh, and instances of, uh, of using uh, women. And we found ourselves needing to remove his music from our hymnals, from our website, from our offering. And of course, it was a very difficult thing to do. And some of the language that some started to speak about, well, is this the music of the composer or does this music now belong to the church? Or is it possible to separate the art from the artist? Um, so we, we have very real, in a very real way, had to deal with this. Um, perhaps, and, and perhaps there is something with, first of all, time, distance, uh, once again, doesn't justify, um, and also the fact that a, a, mu a, a composer of sacred music can't be doing things so antithetical to the very notion of human dignity and, and people. Um, if a composer wants to cheat on their taxes, okay, that's not good, but um, it's, it, it doesn't go to the gravity of, of something like this. Um, th this is fresh for us. This is new for us. Uh, it's, it's, as you mentioned, David, it, it, it's happening all over the place in theological schools, uh, certainly with clergy. Um, Kate, you can help me out here. Sure. Well, you know, he said a, a name that I immediately uh, perked up when I heard the John Howard Yoder, um, who I've gotten to know the the story around um, pretty uh, intimately in the last year because of our work with Into Account. Um, and Into Account is the survivor advocacy organization that was uh, pretty involved in that um, in that um, uh, case with that uh, gentleman and the survivors of his abuse. And they were the ones, too, who survivors of David Haas felt comfortable sharing 
with uh, when this all came to light just over a year ago. Um, just a, a quick note to say that the team at Into Account has been the most phenomenal, intelligent, um, supportive. Uh, they're everything that you would want an advocate to be for you. And I'm so grateful for the work that they are doing, for the ways that they are being just absolute champions to these women who for 40 years could not find someone to take them seriously. Um, and they are, they handle themselves just with such professionalism, but absolute, there is no funny business with these, with these women. They know, they know, they are just so, oh gosh, inherently <laughs> um, ethical and they have so much integrity. I cannot say enough good things about this group into account if there's anyone who happens to be listening who is a, a victim of abuse of any kind into account.org um, will take you seriously. They will believe you and they will, um, they will keep you safe and confidential. They will listen to what you want to do next. Um, and I, I just, and it, and they will do it at no cost to you. So there is no barrier between you finding someone who can help. So thank God that this group existed for these survivors of abuse at the hands of David Haas, which um, if you, you, you know, it's all there. These women have been brave enough to put their stories into writing so that you can see and read. And, and um, it's just, it's just heartbreaking this has happened to so many women and I'm sure that there are more and we're not done. We're not done listening to this. Um, that is to say that this group into account has helped us immensely to figure out exactly the answers to the questions that, that Michael poses. Um, and, you know, frankly, I want to be an advocate for these women too, because um and I don't care if they're customers of GIA. I don't care if they are practicing religious people. That's not the point at all. The point is that there was a grave wrong that happened here and we have an opportunity to never let that happen this way again. So the thing that Into Account taught me, I think that is, seems so simple, <laughs> um, but is the hardest thing to put into practice and potentially the most fruitful thing to put into practice is that when you have these questions come up, you need to center the survivors and the voice of the survivors and the and the the wishes of the survivors center that in your decision making so it's it's not the question is not do we sing this or do we not sing this do we continue to sell this do we continue or do we not discontinue selling this the question is what are these women telling you about the experience not just the experience of abuse at the hands of this person, but what is the experience when they encounter his creative work? In the case of music, you literally take, when you sing, you take someone's creative work and put it into your body. You inhale it and exhale it. It becomes a part of your body. For someone who's a survivor of sexual abuse, that is abuse all over again. And how, as a music director, can you ask your community to be violated again in this way? 
I can't do it. I can't do it. I don't know how people are justifying doing it because the fact of the matter is there are so many women who have been abused by this man. You don't know that you don't have a survivor of his abuse in your congregation. You don't know that. You could likely be asking one of your congregants to be violated in this way again. Also, because of all of these stories and the bravery of these women that have come forward, all kinds of people who have been abused at the hands of others, not by David, have been triggered into reprocessing their own experience and their own grief. And even though David wasn't the one who abused them, they know the story and they connect it to their own. And the same thing happens when you ask them to inhale and exhale the creative work of an abuser. They're being abused again. They're being traumatized and triggered again. Um, when, when I came to understand that level of what it means to center a survivor, a vulnerable person, put the vulnerable people at the center, which is really what Christianity is asking us to do. It asks us to go to the margins and get the people who should be in the center of the conversation. They're the people who need help. They're the vulnerable, the oppressed, the orphan, the widow. They're the people who we should be putting our attention on. Not the ones who have been privileged, who have been published 400 times, who have every advantage of life, who receive um, you know, stipends and royalties. And that's, <laughs> it's a hard thing to say as a publisher. And I'm sure that when you know, people hear this as they have over the last year, um, at least our attitude or my attitude about it, some people will have, it will raise hairs on the back of their head because my publisher is supposed to protect me. And they're supposed to own my copyright and protect it. Yes, absolutely. But I think, I think it was Bob Battistini who always said, if it's good for the church, it's good for GIA. For me, the church is these women. And if we can do what's good for the church, I believe that it is what's good for GIA. And it's the type of precedent I want to set for the people who come after me, for my daughter and the people who continue this legacy much longer than the 80 years we've had it so far. That brings a lot of good clarity. Thank you for that answer. Well, our time is about up, so I've got one more. You all are yourselves in a position of considerable power. Uh, you get to decide who gets published and who doesn't. Uh, you know, you hear the stories of writers and they submit their stuff to, you know, 20 publishing companies, all of who turn them down. And, and uh, musicians are, are similar. Uh, how do you reckon with your power? In all of this, who gets published and who doesn't? How do you all decide? Well, we should let the white male answer, right? Huh? <laughs> well, um, okay, seriously, what happens? Uh, music is submitted to us, and a, a review committee, a small group of people, uh, look at the text, look at the music, we'll play through it. Uh, we will evaluate it on its musical merits, on its textual merits, on its suitability for uh, who we think our customers are. And uh, this is going to go back 
to being an advocate for underrepresented voices. Um, and it, it's very unfair for me to say this. If two pieces come in, if two settings of Psalm 27 come in that day, and they're identical, relatively identical, we like them both. One is by a man, one is by a woman. We're probably going to weigh in favor of the woman composer. The problem with that that we try to be careful of, we would never want people to think that it's lesser music, but because it's by a woman, we'll take it. So there's that's a little bit of tension we have where we want to hold up women's voices, but we never want to take something that isn't someone's best effort, if I can say it that way. It, it, it's difficult for us. Um, we, we look for new voices. Um, we need, we, we do, uh, honor those who have an established place in our catalog. Um, Kate is, is the, uh, overarching editor of a new hymnal we're doing. And one of the things that she and the committee are talking about is how do we make room for more voices in this hymnal. Some established voices need to come out, whether whether it's because of abuse or, or situations. Um, and removing some of that music makes room for new music. So um, there is power in choosing, and it's an awesome power, and we don't take it lightly. Um, Kate, you, you tell a wonderful story about one of your professors who talked about what music publishing is. Uh, my composition teacher, actually. I think this is the story you're talking about. Uh, my composition teacher said, you know, what is the definition of a composer, this story? The no? CTU professor. The CTU professor. Oh, yeah. The CTU professor, uh, Steve Bevins. Um, a theology pr professor who said that as, as Catholics, as Christians, we actually have a responsibility to publish because the things that we have, have discerned and crafted and, and, you know, been in, you know, what we might call in, in the sacred world, a, a, a holy dialogue with God or, uh, that those things that we have created or written or, um, uh, or crafted, that's our little piece of of the kingdom. It's our little representation of of image and likeness of God. We have it's our, it's our little piece of good news, and we need all the little pieces of good news in order to to see a bigger picture. And so we have a responsibility to share this good news as as far and wide uh, as we as we possibly can. And one way to do that. Uh, is by getting it published <laughs> and getting it in the hands of as many people as possible. So if we believe in what we have done um, and and are proud of its representation of, of its time and moment, we have a responsibility to take it places, to say, I have this. And just because it doesn't get accepted doesn't mean that it's not good. It just means that the publishing company says, I don't think that we can get this where you would like it to go. So try another one. We also realize that 
we are in that privileged position of putting words in people's mouth. And, and that's a phrase that we sometimes will remind ourselves of. We put words in people's mouths, uh, the words that they sing. And um, that is so important to us uh, to make sure that the text as well as the music. And that's why we're thankful for so many of our text writers who we have in, in, in addition to our composers. So um, it is a privilege and a power that we delight in, but are also very humbled by. Yeah, absolutely. I think I feel the weight of that um, responsibility, of that privilege every day, every decision. It feels like this is um, decisions that are not made by a single person, but are made in dialogue and community. It feels like I have a responsibility to get this right. And if I may, another thing we feel in addition to this responsibility and privilege, at least for me, it's this wonderful sense of anonymity that there are these people behind a curtain at GIA determining what this music is, and someone is putting this music into hymnals and it, it's very humbling to look at a piece of music and know we're the ones who first saw that um uh, it, it's it's spiritual there is a spiritual element to what we do well we need to continue this conversation and so i hope that we can have another interview uh, sometime in the near future because there's lots more to talk about uh, but you have at least begun our thinking and I'm deeply grateful uh, for both of you uh, for the work that you do uh, and so blessings on that uh, and so thank, thank you and thank, thank you for you. being with me you are listening to Practicing Gospel I'm David Rayburn the music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.